Today's scripture is from Psalm 27, and it can be found on pages 429 and 430 of the Black Bibles underneath your chairs. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Evan, and I'm not one of the pastors here. I live and work in Topeka for an organization called Young Life. I'm very excited to be up here this morning in our pulpit. Um, I told my 94-year-old grandmother the other day that I was preaching this Sunday. Um, my 94-year-old, precious, Christ-loving, Bible-saturated, Psalms-memorized grandma, I said, uh, I'm preaching Psalm 27, and she said, well, are you shaking in your boots? And, and I, I think my biggest fear being up here is actually falling off the stage. Like, like I have this giant fear that like I'm going to think this is a pulpit that I can lean on and rest on in my nervousness of preaching, and I'm just going to fall over. So anyways, uh, that's my fear. Uh, what we're going to do today, overview, is um, we are going to briefly retrace where we've been in Exodus um, the series that we've been in. We're going to go back through that for just a brief period, and then we're going to introduce uh, the summer series, which is going through the Psalms. And I'm going to give a brief just overview of, of why, reasons why we should love the Psalms, and then we'll get into Psalm 27. Um, so uh, last week we finished our series on Israel's exodus out of slavery in Egypt, where we spent a lot of time in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. We listen to the story of Moses leading Israel, God's special and chosen people, out of enslavement to the Egyptians and into the promised land. 
Along the way to freedom, Moses dealt with an ungrateful people, with a sexually immoral people, with lazy, murmuring, groaning, and complaining people. And God was patient with them, waiting, working through the prophet Moses to deliver God's people. While Israel groaned, complained, sinned, repented, and pleaded for mercy, Moses stood ready, attentive to their cries, and approached God on their behalf. We saw that Moses was a type of Christ in so many ways. And personally, I love learning of the comparisons of OT prophets, Old Testament prophets to Jesus, those who foreshadowed him to come, who were like him in certain ways, Jonah, Noah, Job. But the way in which Moses foreshadowed Jesus is almost unparalleled among all the prophets. The list of ways in which Moses was like Jesus was extensive. An author named A.W. Pink, in a book called Gleanings from Genesis, was able to list 75 unique ways in which Moses stood as an example type, a playing the role of Jesus, if you will, who was to come. And here's just a couple. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 5, Moses says to Israel, I stand in between God and you, foreshadowing the way Jesus would mediate a new covenant between us and God by his blood. Moses brought the cause of the people before the Lord. As 1 John says, Jesus is our advocate, priest, who intercedes and brings forth our cause to the Father. And there are so many more. Um, This summer as a church, we will be in the book of Psalms, where many of those inner groanings, those restless cries of the heart, and those strange fears and feelings and pleas for mercy... The songs of exiles come to life for us in the form of songs. As Christians, we find ourselves intimately acquainted with the Exodus story, familiar with the up and down, groaning, sometimes strange path of deliverance. We have been delivered once and for all. The blood of Jesus is sufficient and efficient to deliver us fully from our sin, from death, and from hell at the moment we trust him by faith. Why? Because it's the object of our faith that saves us and not the intensity of our faith that saves us. Our faith hinges not upon our subjective experiences of our faith, ebbs and flows of our feelings, but on the objective outside of ourselves reality that God has provided a Savior for us. And here's a quick story I want to to tell. Because not only do we, when we read the Old Testament, understand and see Jesus more clearly, Uh, through those types, but we also, uh, through the events uh, that are types of what is to come, we we help, it helps us understand what faith in Christ is like. For instance, uh, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, he's a New Testament scholar, uh, he tells a story of two Jewish men who he calls Smith and Brown uh, on the day of Passover when the angel of death was going to fly over and take the firstborn. Unless the Jewish people obeyed Moses, the voice of God that came through Moses and said, prepare, slaughter a lamb, and cover the doorposts with the blood of the lamb, sit down and eat. And the angel of death will surely pass over you based on the blood. But he tells this story about Smith and Brown and how that day they they meet each other down somewhere, and Smith and Brown are talking, and Smith Smith says, Brown, aren't you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? I mean, everything that's been happening around here and angel of death and firstborn being slaughtered. And, and Brown goes, 
I'm not nervous at all. I trust in the promises of God. Bring it on. And, and, and then D.R. Carson goes on to say, uh, that night as the angel of death passed through, who died? Neither. Because the grounds of our assurance is not the intensity of our faith, but the grounds of our assurance is the blood of Jesus. That is our grounding. Three years later, it could have been the opposite between those two people. It is not the ebbs and flows of the feelings of our faith, but the grounds of our assurance is the blood of Jesus. And they both obeyed. Maybe one weaker, maybe one stronger. So not only do we see Jesus more clearly when we read the Old Testament, but we understand faith in Christ and we see that justification by faith alone and grace alone through the blood of Jesus alone was and is, has been scattered throughout the Bible the whole time. Um, as Christians, we are exiles and strangers to the present world, ransomed by the blood of Jesus, as Peter describes in the second chapter of his first epistle, verse 11. And yet Peter also has to urge us in the same verse, to live into this identity by abstaining from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. In other words, even though we are exiles to the world, that's who we are. We're God's chosen, precious children and strangers to the world, friends of God, crucified with Christ, yet we still carry our old self. We are still beset with weaknesses and specific temptations. And so we are delivered, being delivered, and one day, Will be fully delivered. And as we enter in the Psalms, we don't simply enter into David's cries, Heman's cries, the sons of Korah's cries, or Israel's history. Although the Psalms do help us glean certain historical details that we wouldn't otherwise understand, it is not purely historical narrative or even really doctrine-centered. Although it's rich with both, this is where it is really helpful to understand and have respect for the genre of different books in the Bible. And the Psalms stand apart from any other book because it's songs and poetry meant to move us and speak for us when we can't speak. With that said, I think there are two errors that we can make when we approach the Psalms. I'm sure there are many more, but these two stick out to me. One is reading the Psalms as historical and not only. And I don't know if there's a lot of us that trip up on this, um, but I could imagine there might be. Why would that be an error? And I think that would be an error because that would negate that its intended purpose is to support God's people throughout all time periods. That would make it about those people only or what they went through only and not apply it to ourselves. I think the other error, error is well-intentioned and it is to view the Psalms purely and only Christologically. What I mean by that is this. Sometimes we can excuse ourselves from allowing ourselves to be placed into God's unfolding redemptive story and by that, that's an eloquent way of just saying we can excuse ourselves from picking up our cross, dying to ourself, losing our life for Christ's sake to find our life in him by looking at certain difficult-to-understand passages, quote-unquote intense passages of Scripture, and we can say, that's great, but, but that's just about Jesus. It's just a foreshadowing of him and what he will go through on the cross. Never could I go through something like it. Family of God, that would be as if the searching for Christ in all of Scripture is like that of searching for a piece of furniture to adorn our study room. Instead of the precious pearl of great worth that he is, 
And that in our selling of everything in order to more tightly hold to him, the word of life, and vice versa, as he grips us more tightly, we loosen our grip on those things. And it's in our joy of possessing him that we can endure the trials where we see him as worthy of the fighting of temptation, worthy of the depression, where we see him worthy of losing friends and family. See, when we see Moses was a type of Christ, like when it says he counted it more precious to endure painful affliction with God's people in slavery, instead of enjoying the fleeting sin of Egypt, then we apply that to Jesus and we see that he resolved to empty himself and come to earth instead of remain in unbroken fellowship with his Father in heaven in order to save us. We celebrate, we rejoice, and we ought to read that and consider for ourselves, Jesus, what might be the cost to follow you? You are worth it. Now, let me get this straight. Um, It is true that we will not ever endure what Christ has fully endured for us. We will not have to bear the weight of the world's sin. Uh, We will not bear the full weight of God's wrath. But let let me give you one example of this. In relation to the Exodus story, we experience the estrangement of the world, of our past. We fight the feelings of the good old days when, in reality, those days were slavery. This is us following Jesus, and we have a taste of the suffering that he felt as a stranger to the world he created. Although we may feel estranged from this world, none of us laid the beams and the foundations of it. Imagine being a father coming home in the evening after a long day's work to a home you built. You laid the pillars of the house. You placed its beams. You built it all. All of this while with every brick laid, you dreamt about your family finding comfort in this house with you, eating with your wife, eating with your kids, enjoying them in your house. But you come home and your house is full of strangers. Their faces find no pleasure in your face as you arrive. No kids come running into your arms as you lie down your briefcase. No, no, no. They're completely content to absorb themselves in the things that you created for them. That would be just a taste of how our Lord felt as he came to his own, as John says, and yet by his own he was rejected. And I don't say we feel sorry for him. He stands confident and knows his worthiness to be worshipped. It's the pity that he felt for his children to turn back to himself, the one who was worthy that ended up sending him to the cross. While our backs were still turned on him, he felt a jealousy for us to know his love. We've all gone astray and worshipped the things he created in exchange for him. So while, for, for example, we might feel estrangement from close friends and family as we follow Christ, we won't know what it's like to die for our family as they are still turned against us. And the book of Psalms is a lot like that. What I mean is this. We might get tastes of the experiential realities of the Psalms while Jesus consumed the whole cup of it. We know from Luke chapter 24, verse 44, that Jesus, he says to his disciples that he must fulfill everything written about him in the law of Moses, the prophets, and in the Psalms. So reading the Psalms is Christological. Therefore, we learn to read the Psalms, sometimes find ourselves comforted by them personally. They are for us. Sometimes not only ourselves reading, but singing them from the depths of our being. And then we think of how Jesus superseded our sorrowful experiences in his way of the cross, superseded our joy in the way of his resurrection and ascension. Our experiences of pain, sorrow, and waiting while tough could never supersede the trials of Jesus. Nor would we want them to, for then who would be the high priest there to sympathize with us in our weakness 
Our high priest is not David, it's Jesus. After Jesus resurrected, he ascended, and he sat at the right hand of the Father. While as eloquent as that sounds, it's very rich in meaning. And he now sits and lives to make intercession, intercession for his people. In other words, although his work of atoning for our sin is accomplished by the way of the cross, he is still at work in us by his spirit. He is not the emotionally unavailable father who comes home from work, leans back in his recliner, indulges in entertaining TV, and has no time for his kids. Rather, it is the delight of Jesus to come home after the work of atoning for the sin of the world so that he might intercede, that he might hang with his children. We see the emotional life, the amazing heart cries of our high priest, Jesus, throughout the Psalms. And I want to say this, that if we want an intimate relationship with our Lord, then we must know the Psalms. What do we see in the Psalms? We see a broad range of emotions. I really hate that. Women always bear the brunt of being labeled emotional. I really don't think it's from a heart of wisdom that a man should ever take part in jokes like that. We've all heard them. I've, I've been guilty. It's just when I see the greatest, most fiercest warrior that ever lived, not David, Jesus, I see a man of many, many emotions. The Psalms give us the freedom to vent with reverence, and as music, they are also meant to move our emotions to make us more like him. Just like you would, with your favorite musician, lean in and sway with the song. In the Psalms, we go from, I'm just going to list a few, loneliness, I'm lonely and afflicted, I'm not going to read the verses. I love you, Lord, in all, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. Sorrow, my life is spent with sorrow. Regret, I'm sorry for my sin. Contrition, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. We see discouragement. Why are you downcast, my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Shame, shame has covered my face. Exaltation in your salvation, I, I exult. Marveling, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Delight, his delight is the law of the Lord. Gladness, I will be glad and exult. We see fear, serve the Lord with fear. We see anger, be angry and don't sin. We see desire, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. We see hope. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. We see gratitude. I will thank you in the great congregation. We see pain. I am afflicted and in pain. Confident. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Those are the heart cries of the people of God. The one uh, uh, description of somebody apart from Christ is that their heart is unfeeling like fat. That's what we read in Psalms 119, verse 70. And I think of a C.S. Lewis quote where he says, if you don't want to feel pain, lock your heart up. Don't love. Never be vulnerable. And so we, what we see in the Psalms is we see of the vulnerable heart of God that we can find rest in, that we can be vulnerable with him, that we can take all and every single emotion to him as he has felt to the infinite degree of what we felt. Last point before we get into Psalm 22. Hey, it's the first in the series. Okay, I can do that. If we find ourselves shying away from the depths that we see in the Psalms, let me say this. It's the last thing I'll say in general about approaching the Psalms. If we tend to shy away, which we all do, we all have times of that. The Psalms are very much interwoven with all of Scripture. For example, maybe we are more apt to pick up the Bible and turn to Ephesians. For whatever, reasons, for whatever reason, we find Ephesians to be precious to us. While it's a different form, it's an informative letter, from Paul, he declares universally 
and emphatically that Christians do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So therefore, when you read the Psalms and you see all this talk about, which there's a lot of, enemies and deliverance from enemies and enemies here and enemies there, armies and evildoers eating my flesh, animals and beasts coming after me, they are encamped against me. Well, you are right when you think, well, I got no animals after this. Last time I checked, I really don't have people waging war against me, although, although you might. You have something far greater waging war against you. That the Psalms are almost but weak descriptions of the spiritual battle of Christians against the principalities, the powers of darkness, the rulers of this current evil age that we do indeed wrestle with. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12. And what does Paul instruct the Ephesians to do about this warfare? Of course, we're some of us might know about Ephesians 6, put on the spiritual battle, uh, the armor, all of that. But he already, he's, the whole book is about spiritual battle. And, and, in, and in chapter 5, he says this. He says, do not get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. So in other words, good doctrine about Satan should lead us to dependency upon the Psalms. Those three different types of songs, that Paul lists, songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, are the three different types of songs that we see uh, described in the Psalms. So in other words, if we want to be well-equipped, sing the songs, know the Psalms, bleed the Psalms, but let's get familiar with the 27th Psalm. I'll pray for us before we uh, enter in. Lord Jesus, you are our light and our salvation. You are the good friend who sings a sad song when we are sad. You are not the bad friend who sings a happy song to a sad song, sad soul. Proverbs says that doing that is like taking a coat off on a cold day, which implies to me, Lord, that you long to comfort us and clothe us. And you sometimes do this by simply singing in tune with us, wherever we might be. That's it. You sing a glad song with us, and we are glad. And you sing a fearful song with us, and we are fearful. And you sing a song of painful waiting when we wait. Lord, in this psalm we open up this morning, please teach us to seek you, to wait on you, to preach to our hearts, and to meditate on you. Um, psalm 27, Psalm of David. A lot of Christians through the years have taken comfort in the song. Many are also confused by it. And it almost seems to be two different psalms because of the cliff dive type of drop that we read after verse 7. A mood swing, a shift in posture seems to occur as David in verses 1 to 7 seems superhuman, so confident, and in something like a flip of a switch, he seems fearful and frightened. Now, I don't think there should be any serious consideration that there should be two psalms. There's enough structural integrity for it to be the same psalm. Not only that, but many of us are all too familiar with that strange, unexplainable emotional drop that can happen in the soul in a matter of fleeting seconds. And so I'm thankful there's a song for us. Other fears that we can name from this psalm is David's fear that God's face is hidden from him. He fears being rejected and cast off. The reality or the fear of losing his mother and father. Fears of being handed over to the will and to the desires of the evil one. So let's go. Verse 1. The Lord is our light. The Lord is our salvation. Jesus is the outcome of our faith. If salvation could be reduced only to a past event, we would feel shame if we continue to ask Jesus for rescue in this life like David does. If salvation is only future, that would deny that he is a very present help 
in times of trouble and that the promise of his Holy Spirit to comfort us in this life is not an ongoing experience of salvation. It is. See, David here is a theologian and he understands that salvation cannot be reduced to events or professions of faith in the past, no matter how important those are. But David views the person of Jesus our Lord as his salvation. He does not look to events for confidence, although we will see later in the second half of this psalm that certain past events and deliverances do give him help, and they help his confidence in weak times. This is what allows him to feel no shame at the amount of times that he might beg the Lord for help and rescue from trials. And it also warns us to not put too much confidence in past experiences as a basis of our assurance. Our assurance of God's love comes to us as we experience ongoing dependency upon him in prayer and ultimately the clinging to his promises by faith. The Lord, the second part of verse 1, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Another word for stronghold could be defense or help or even escape. Notice David's confidence is casting himself upon who God is. In other words, he's practicing what a lot of saints throughout church history have called throwing yourself upon the attributes of God. David, although confident in this first part, he refuses to base his confidence in himself. He does not say, I'm the stronghold of my life. When our grip on Jesus feels weak, know that his grip on us is strong. In weak times of faith, meditate upon his strong grip on you. Verse 2, when the evildoers come to assail me, when they shoot at me, when they eat my flesh, it is they who will fall. When, not if, when I am assailed, when the floods of doubt, when the waves of unbelief and lies come tearing through my mind. When we find ourselves saying things like, the darkness just, just seems too close. Take confidence. David saying that his flesh getting eaten up sounds very, very close. When the darkness does not seem to lift, David found confidence in preaching to himself about the destruction of his enemies based upon the promise of God. Now, I'm not saying we walk around proud that we should be constantly saying things like, Satan, I command you this. That's not what he's doing. He is doing self-help, though. But he's not doing self-help in the way that most self-help books instruct us to. No, he chooses the way of weakness. He chooses to preach to himself about who God is while knowing how weak he is. It's not David speaking things into existence. He's not going around claiming things. He's humble enough to know and never underestimate the power of his enemies. He's preaching to himself about what God will do and what God has promised to do with his enemies and what Jesus will do. Verse 3, although an army encamp against me, though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. While verse 2 may be a description of the crafty tempting of Satan, I think verse 3 is a description of the accusing from Satan. He is crafty with both, and I don't think I would be wrong to say that some of us here will either face a tendency to hear the accusations more, and some fall victim to the temptations more. Uh, one of Satan's descriptions about him that we can know and be sure of is that he's the accuser of the, of the church. And the Hebrew words here, encamp against me and arise against me, have a connotation of courtroom or judicial terminology. And I think one of the ways Satan uh, really gets a hold of Christians is to get them to think of, of Jesus' return as only coming judgment. While judgment will come and Jesus will bring justice, he wants his bride, 
the people of his own possession, bought by his blood, to look forward to and anticipate a wedding, not a courtroom. Those are images for us to cling to. He gave them to us. As our eyes awaken to Jesus as our bridegroom, and I think that's something the men here, we really need to especially pay attention to that verbiage of being married to Christ and belonging to him. Um, but Jesus has fitted us, fitted us in a righteous robe by his own blood. We are cleansed, and we walk to him down the aisle, awaiting consummation and glory. And it's Satan that, that tempts us to look at ourselves for assurance as we walk down. But it's our confidence. Our confidence comes to us as we look towards him and look towards his eyes and look towards his vows and his promises uh, that maintain a steady walk, not ourselves. Verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I might meditate and reflect upon his goodness, his beauty. David is igniting his heart to confidence by again looking forward to Christ, asking God to allow him to meditate, to reflect and to sit still and wonder about the loveliness of him. All the days, not only days of trouble, but the days of ease, days of pleasure, we must resolve in our minds through his spirit to decisively choose him in a way to store up love for Christ when the day of trouble comes. Uh, what we see in verse 4 is decisive, willful volition on the part of David to make God his chosen chosen portion. Um, now, I think John Owen, uh, a Puritan from like the 1600s, is very helpful for us here. Because we all know those people, and we might be that person, that walks around very confident in speech about our affection for God. Oh, I just love the Lord. Oh, I just had a five-hour quiet time. Oh, I delight in the Lord Jesus. Do you? I mean, you know, like, do you? One implication of this request by David is the fact that it's a request, meaning that he must not have always had this uninterrupted infatuation with Jesus. It's a request. And so on, on page 32, John Owen writes this in a, in a book called Communion with God. He says, uh, Many saints have no greater burden in their lives than that their hearts do not constantly delight and rejoice in God. And he says this, do this. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father. and See if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water and you will soon find its stream sweet and delightful. Um, I think... In our sinful state, we have a natural tendency to, to think ugly things are beautiful and beautiful things are ugly. And so we've got to pray that Jesus would continue to become more lovely in our sight. That's not a wrong prayer or something to be ashamed of. David prayed it, and it sounds a lot like Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to know the love of Christ. Verse 5, for he will hide me in the day of trouble. David knows and expects days of trouble. However, he has stored up meditative thoughts about the character of God for those very days. He is hopeful here. On into verse 6, where we see the climax and the pinnacle of David's confidence here in the sixth verse. David's, in verse 6, David's confidence leads him into dreams and future visions of not just enduring the warfare, not just surviving, but of basically ascending over his enemies, these enemies who are all around him. 
And then we get to see Superman, David, be, be human. The drop comes, and verse 7 says, Hear me, God, when I cry. Be gracious. Answer me. Verse 8, you have said, seek my face. And my heart replies, your face, Lord, I seek it. Don't hide. Be assured that in our seeking of him, we might know that he has initiated. He has sought after us long before. He has waited for us to answer. And now God awaits patiently all those who are yet to come to him. Verse 8 implies that God is the seeker. He turns human hearts to himself and has waited more patiently for us to answer his knocking on our hearts than we have awaited answers from him. God is a long-suffering God. He knows enduring patience. Verse 9, turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Don't forsake me. This part of the psalm seems overshrouded with darkness while the first part was thoroughly confident. There are only notes of hope here. One note of hope that David sings is this, O you who have been my help. In other words, David says, Jesus, you have been there for me before. You have delivered me before. Past deliverances, past helps, while not enough to rely on sometimes, they do offer us help. However, our human hearts and the accuser often gets the best of us here. And we go through things and we think, I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone. Oh, I've never been through this before. Maybe this affliction is just too severe for God. I personally did this exact same thing last fall. I thought to myself one day, Evan, you've never really struggled with doubt before. This is new territory for you. I wonder if you'll get through any of it. Until months later, I, I picked up one of my journal entries from five years before, and I read, tough day. Lots of doubts and mental struggles came my way. This evening in worship, through singing, I found a lot of relief and deliverance. So maybe... You are sitting there and you have no past help to provide you with comfort. I'd encourage you to think about God's common grace that he's given to all of us to deliver us from things in life. Just reflect on that. And then pray. God, you are able to do this. You are able to, to build the world with your voice. God, you are able to do this. But it's not wrong to take confidence from past deliverances and past helps. Um, verse 10, my mother and father have forsaken me. The Lord will take me in. An almost gruesome depiction of a parent's death is the description of that as forsakenness. But death is a hideous thing, and I do believe that what David has in mind is his parents' death. I don't think we have anything recorded in Scripture that, that I could find that his, that his parents really did forsake him. I could be wrong, but, but I, think, I think what he's talking about is the death of his parents, and he's describing it as forsakenness. The Lord becomes more precious to us as we consider the inabilities and the limitations of, of human parents to care for us. Jesus becomes to us more preciously the one who will not forsake us because he cannot die again. We know as our father, we will never be forsaken by him. Verse 11, teach me your way. I desire a level path. That's David's request and who doesn't desire that? I know those older men around me that I aspire to imitate that seem so steady. We innately desire steadiness. 99% of runners and joggers never change their path. There is some hope to be found in familiarity. The Christian life, while never easy, can have times of familiarity. For instance, we are commanded in the book of Corinthians to be aware of Satan's schemes, to learn, to know, to be aware of our path. It's that team that you've never played before where you can find yourself more anxious. 
Or it's in times maybe in the war that that jungle you haven't been through would cause much more worry. Only his lamp can be a guide to our feet. And I know sometimes we want a spotlight, but he gives enough for each step. Verse 12, give me not up, give me not away to the desires of my enemy. They falsely testify about me and continually breathe out violence. You see what happens when you make progress in the Christian life. The Lord sanctifies us. He makes us more like himself. It's his work. And yet there still come those times where you might be absolutely frightened by the thought of stumbling. Oh, Lord, will I fall? Will I stumble, oh, Lord? Please don't let my foot slip, cried David. Have you carried me this far, honored me this much, just so I can fall into shame? Thoughts can cripple us sometimes. I think Peter, the apostle, is helpful to us here in the book of Peter when he says, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Put on these virtues of love and peace and steadfastness and in this way of holiness through the Lord, you will never fall. And he assumes as he has himself that his readers fear that. Verse 13, I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In the last two verses, David is preaching to himself. He does that a lot. He preaches to himself about five times in this psalm. And you could say that he is just telling himself truth. Earlier, he seemed so confident about dwelling in the house of the Lord. And now it is as if he is having to encourage his heart to believe it. Verse 14 says this, wait for the Lord, be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And here we are at the end, confident. Now, David is now humbly sitting still in the waiting room. I think there is one posture that we often see in the Psalms, and that is of waiting. And it's not passive. Waiting requires trust to sit still. It's an act of faith in one of God's attributes, namely that he is sovereign, and second, that he is providential. So even in David's waiting, uh, he's casting himself upon God. Now, Jesus was the one who did not need to grow or learn to trust his father, yet he subjected himself to this world and he grew perfect by what he suffered, even though he was already perfect. It was Jesus who, unlike any of us, trusted God even at his mother's breasts. Though all-powerful and all-knowing, he subjected himself by the Spirit to be tempted and accused by Satan in the wilderness. And at age 12, we see Jesus in the temple gazing and inquiring on the beauty of his father. Just like in verse 6, we saw Jesus confident. So many times in the Gospels, you just see sheer confidence of Jesus. He says, I will rise. And in three days, I will rise. Was there a shift? Was there a sudden shift in the life of Jesus? And I do think there was in the garden the night before on the cross. And if Jesus... And if Jesus fulfills the Psalms, how does he fulfill a Psalm like Psalm 88 or Psalm 39 that end in no hope? Psalm 39 ends with this. I was silent. I would not open my mouth for you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I might enjoy life again. 
before I depart and am no more. That's it. That's the end. And Psalm 88 ends with, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults, they destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. See, Jesus perfectly gazed at the beauty of his Father for all eternity. And it was Jesus who cried out to his Father for deliverance, to see his face, and was actually unheard. He said, is there any other way, Father? Jesus begged for deliverance in the garden. Is there any other way? He cried out. Jesus, is is there another way of salvation for Evan? Is there another way for anyone to be saved, to be in your presence, to gaze upon your beauty forever, other than drinking your cup of wrath? Is there another way? The perfect soul that deserved endless delight at the face of his father heard silence. He waited in the garden. He suffered drops of blood in his waiting and wasn't delivered. None of us have waited that long before. None of us were sure to face God's wrath, but Jesus, he fulfilled these songs. Not only did his family desert him, but his heavenly father truly, really did cast him off and crushed him for our iniquities. The father doing this in love so that anyone who looks upon Jesus might have life might have answers and might see the light of God's face. God raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus really did ascend far above all his enemies and he gloated over the principalities of darkness as he ascended to the Father. There he stands at the right hand, living to make intercession for us. So as we approach the communion table, we remember that it is his death, resurrection, and ascension that provides us with confidence. The basis for our confident waiting, our faithful waiting for full deliverance is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We remember his road to the cross that began with a dinner of singing psalms with his disciples in the upper room. He passed the bread and told them, this is my body broken for you and this wine here, the blood shed for you. Take, eat, and take drink. Do this in remembrance of me until I return to eat and drink with you at the resurrection. Today, if you are here and you want to come forward for communion, please do so. If you are unsure about Jesus and his claims, we invite you to consider what is written on the screen. And the third motion is that we have people in the back ready to pray for any of us who need it. Uh, I'll pray for us and then you can come forward to receive communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, uh, in love to us, God, sent your son to die for us on the cross. God, I pray um, that we would grow in our meditation upon you, in our seeing of you, Jesus, by faith. Um, God, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.